Greetings, 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 everyone, and welcome back to your podcast, The Africanist. Uh, I am your host, Bamba, and today I have another special guest. His name is Dr. Mawena Kosi Logan. Dr. Logan is a professor of African and African diasporic literature at the University of Louisville where he also teaches critical race theory and ethnicity. Dr. Logan, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ndiaye. I'm happy to be here. Uh, as you've already said, I teach in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. Uh, I hail from Ghana and Togo, and I claim both countries because um, where I was born in present-day Ghana was once what is now Togo, but that's another story which has a story which has back to the partition of Africa in Berlin in 1884-85, a story with which many are quite familiar today. Um, I earned my master's degree in African-American World Studies and PhD in English from the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, my academic journey actually began earnestly when I decided to major in literatures of Africa and uh, of Africa and African diaspora. Um, I remember taking a, a graduate class in, in literature, in Victorian literature, and it dawned on me then that not only is the history and, of slavery and colonization very important or crucial to our understanding of the image of the African continent, but also 19th century literature, which celebrated, excuse me, uh, championed and perpetuated these images of Africa. So as you know, literature or fiction cannot be divorced from life. Uh, I would later go on to write my dissertation on the fiction of a 19th century British writer by the name of George Henty. Uh, George Henty was, uh, he wrote about 94 novels, or novels for young adults. And most of those novels are actually adventure stories. And eight of them were set in Africa. Uh, Henty was somebody you would call the quintessential uh, writer of empire, which means that he wrote to promote the idea of British empire. Uh, he was also a war correspondent who reported on colonial wars on the continent. So as I expected, he had nothing good to say about Africa or Africa <laughs> Africans. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I was doing my research on, the to on my topic, uh, which I later titled Africa Through Victorian Eyes, I was also thinking about the reading audience of Henty, young adults. Young Victorians were thought, taught through Henty's works uh, to consider colonization of other worlds as a duty, a God-given obligation to write uh, or, and the right to civilize uh, the rest of the world without any hint about the economic and political in incentives of the colonizing uh, powers. So Henty believed that uh, war was a training ground for character and necessary, a necessary step for future colonists. In fact, uh, a majority of his novels uh, accounts of war expeditions he covered as a war correspondent. And uh, he worked for uh, this newspaper, the London Standard. Uh, for Henty, the, those wars were a rite of passage. The colony in Henty's works served as a training ground uh, for manly activities. So it was very masculine, mm -hmm. uh, which the hero would need when he returns home. 
uh, that this literature targets young adults is very important uh, because there is no better way to inculcate su supremacist ideas uh, and ideologies than through the youth. This attitude has not changed in 2020. The continent is still viewed as needing Western interference and guidance. And as such, many are oblivious to African contributions uh, to the Western world in terms of human capital, slavery, for instance, uh, as well as natural resources. For example, many in the global north uh, have no idea that the chips used in our smartphones today are mined in the poorest countries in Africa. Yes, you, you, you give us an interesting uh, insight in the, the colonial mindset right, of that time. And this is also a reminder that British or European colonization in general did not start with the weapon, but it started with literature, right? Whether it is literary text or anthropology or geography, that was the starting point. And uh, through the works of Henty, we see clearly that that was a uh, literature was a valuable currency in the mindset of colonial Europe. Now, um, you are a scholar of postcolonial theory as it ties to literature, critical race theory, and ethnicity for over two decades now. Can you tell us more about your scholarship in in the field? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Um, Post-colonial takes in a lot, uh, maybe more than it can chew, uh, but it also speaks to critical race theory, race formation, racial formations, and feminist criticism. Uh, Ashcraft and Al have spoken about how studies involving minority communities uh, in industrialized countries can be termed post-colonial, given their subordinate status. Uh, based solely on race or ethnicity. So a lot can happen, and, uh, or we can put a lot under the umbrella of post-colonial theory and theorizing. I would also say that the term post-colonial is very ambiguous, if not controversial, in, in many ways. Uh, because I remember Ghanaian writer, Ama Ata Aidu, uh, in an article or an, an interview, asks, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, uh, ask any village woman how post-colonial her life is. So in a way, we can look at post-colonial theory uh, as a way that academics talk theoretically about the aftermath of, of, of colonialism. But it is also very, very uh, uh, crucial to, for us to understand that the prefix post signify a lot of things. Does it mean after? Does it mean uh, free from uh, colonial, but one thing that is certain it is that the term does not really speak to the realities uh, of the continent. But you can you can push that a little bit further uh, further along the way. Okay, now how how applicable is the term postcolonial to African literature and identities or the lived experience? or experiences of, of Africans? When I began my doctoral studies in the late uh, 80s, post-colonial theory or criticism in academia was in its infancy. Uh, a lot has happened since then. The term is quite, as I said earlier, quite misleading uh, because we don't know exactly where to place or how to demarcate this period. 
um, but at the same time, too, we can appreciate the ways in which the study of literature written by uh, former colonized authors or countries um, are being discussed in academia. So it is very important. It is also very important to look at how contemporary Africa is not free from colonialism. In other words, people would actually say it's a neo-colonial period uh, because what is happening on the continent now is quite disturbing economically, politically, and socially. Uh, our identities are still tied uh, with the, our former to our former uh, our former colonizers. So it is very important to keep that in mind. Uh, we rarely choose our own leaders in Africa today, for instance. Our mineral resources are still prized by the West, and we are busy copying the West in many, many ways, socially and, and, and culturally. So uh, it is also very important to think uh, about those terms and how expedient they are to our own experiences in, in Africa or how we live in Africa. And, and identities are not fixed. I'm not saying that we should go back or we should have a fixed identity. Identities change with time, with history, with cultural um, uh, impediments. So we shouldn't think that identities are fixed, but at the same time, too, we should be able to determine what our future is like. Does post-colonial African literature uh, before colonization actually count in this corpus of, of, of production or cultural production? Does literature written in African languages uh, count also as post-colonial? So having said that, uh, the insertion of literature from the global south, uh, meaning so-called third world countries in, uh, in Western academia, has been um, has brought many academic and systematic ways in which uh, colonial literature and ideas are discussed. Uh, Post-colonial theory in general was born out of scholars' dis dissatisfaction with the ways in which the colonial encounter had been hitherto uh, described or narrated through the eyes of the colonizer and has its roots also in post-structuralism. So we look at writers or post-colonial theories, uh, Fernand, for instance, Said, Ashcraft, Baba, Spivak, and others were quite instrumental in theorizing uh, the post-colonial. But also post-colonialism, as I said earlier, owes its advent to post-structuralism. And post-structuralists, most of them are Europeans, specifically French scholars, mm -hmm. including Jean-Francois Lyotard, um, uh, who once said that he defined post-modernism post as the demise of Western meta-narratives, which means that meaning is not fixed and should not be universally conceived of as a Western idea. So we... He, they brought to the table uh, many ways of reading, in other words, from a perspective that has not been heard before, in other words, from the perspective of the once colonized people, which is very important. So Jacques, Jacques Derrida, for instance, Michel Foucault, Roland Barthes, uh, Jean Baudrillard, uh, Judith Butler, and Christiva were the ma major post-structuralists. And even though post-colonial theory has borrowed from them, they also are aware of the fact that it is not just that. They value and applaud the ways in which Western epistemologies are not privileged, but postcolonial theories have found a way to look at how polysemic, in other words, how varied meaning can be, and that actually helped them uh, voice their own concerns from their own perspective. And I think that's why 
postcolonial theory has also been ad- had, had been co-opted by feminist theories, for instance. So it's coming from the subaltern, as uh, uh, Spivak would say. Interesting. You give us like the link between not only postcolonial theory and post-structuralism, but we also see a clear relationship between postcolonial theory and and feminism, right? So, and uh, in in the same vein, next to postcolonial theory, we increasingly hear about the concept of decoloniality, which also emerged from uh, the works of uh, Global South scholars, particularly Latin American ones. What are the relationship and the differences between the two, if any? The relationship and differences between postcolonial theory and the concept of decoloniality. Uh, thank you. Uh, like post-coloniality, decoloniality cannot be divorced uh, from decolonization in that both are concerned, broadly speaking, with a critique of colonialism and colonization. So post-colonial theory subsumes what decolonization and decoloniality entail uh, as all colonialist, imperialist, episteme uh, are spring from the knowledge production uh, from the West, which is often predicted on Eurocentrism. So uh, the coloniality emerged quite recently among Latin American scholars, and they focus more on deconstructing knowledge systems or epistemologies from the West. And what that means is that they specifically focus on that knowledge production. And I would say that it is not very different or not at all different from post-colonial theory because under post-colonial theory, there is also a deconstruction of knowledge systems, not practically and also theoretically. So I think to say that decoloniality is not decolonization, I can understand that in the sense that decoloniality could be a state of being. In other words, it's not fixed. Um, but it doesn't take away the fact that post-colonial theory subsumes that. In other words, uh, tackles that idea of Western epistemology also and challenges it in, in many ways. So we can talk about that in theory and also in practice. So decoloniality, I, I, I'm not in, you know, in a position to criticize them, but I think it could be a branch, it could be part and parcel of post-colonial theorizing. And I think that is very important because when you, it is important to focus on how knowledge production remains the bedrock of post of domination. So, in other words, if you control knowledge systems, then you control the people, and and postcolonial theory does not shy away from that either. So, we might talk about literature uh, and all that, but as I said, in Henty, Henty tries to inculcate, to educate, quote unquote, the youth through literature, through his own ideas about the superiority of the British, which is, in a sense, it is epistemologically Western idea. And if decoloniality tackles that, post-colonial theory also tackles that as well. So I don't think there's any big difference. We might want to pass words, but I think under post-colonial, we can still put decoloniality. Now I want us to come back to George Hente a little bit, right? Sure. Uh, In relation to uh, his preaching about the barbarity of Africans and the necessity for young British to take part in the colonial enterprise. And when you read people like Henty, you have a feeling that these people understand Africa, 
or you might have a feeling that they understand Africa. Right. Maybe they even spent time over there mm -hmm. to be able to talk about this mythical place, this continent of quote-unquote barbarians. And so, is, is that the case for Henty? What was his involvement with uh, Africa? Okay, Henty, as I said, was a war correspondent for the London uh, Standard. So he was there on the ground in many cases. And the novels that he published about 94, six, eight of them, I should say, eight, six, eight of them were published, uh, were set in Africa. So, and most of them, he was there himself. But already he had an idea of what he wanted to say about Africa. So for him as a writer of empire, whether, whether, whether he saw something good about Africa or not, he is not going to push that idea. He wants to, his readers, to uh, get this into their head that it is our duty. In other words, it is the duty of the British to colonize other people, to dominate other people. So how can you say anything good about the people you want to dominate? So in order to dominate them, you have to badmouth them. You have to vilify them, dehumanize, dehumanize them. That's what he did. And uh, you know, I don't want to quote any, anything from his uh, books, but he actually says the things that people were saying in the 19th century, pseudoscientists were saying about how the brain of the African is like that of a child, things like that, and that they can imitate, they cannot create. Anything, anytime you give black people an opportunity, they, they, they squander the opportunity. So all the stereotypical views that we come to identify as belonging to the 19th century uh, uh, British literature or 19th century European mindset about Africa are all present there. So you don't even have to read many of his novels to know that it is a, it's a stock kind of representation or image of Africa. That has never, never changed throughout his, uh, uh, his, his uh, work. Now, it is also very important to uh, to note that he said himself in one of his books that he is not a historian. He's just trying to teach the youth history in an acceptable way. An acceptable way is very, very vague. In other words, acceptable to whom? So to, to the British. So when you read Henty's novels, it is kind of, I would say, boring because from, from one book to the other is the same stereotypes he repeats all the time. And to also uh, underscore his tactic, he never, he said in his books that he never wrote the books uh, in his autobiography, that he never wrote any of the books himself. He would be, he would sit down on his chair and his, um, his secretary would, would copy what he was trying to tell him. So he would tell the story orally mm -hmm. to the secretary and the secretary would just type, type it. Exactly. So, uh, even though he was, a war correspondent. He never took seriously Africans. So you, people might say, oh, because he was there on the ground himself, what he was actually saying uh, was truthful. But again, when you go back to Western uh, writing about Africa in the 19th century, they're all stock production, stock images of Africa. Nothing really to give a variety of perspectives. No, not at all. Yeah, interesting. And, and of course, this also reminds me of The Heart of Darkness, which also uh, vehicles the same ideas and the same stereotypes. Or even even uh, Ego, like the, the, his philosophy when he talks about you know, Africa and 
trying to come up with a new geography for Africa and talking about Africa proper and Africa that is not proper. So it's it's once again confirmed that this was a continental mindset, right? And uh, that was the underlying uh, assessment, the underlying assumption of the colonial enterprise in general. Now, coming back to the idea of uh, decoloniality and decolonization, right? You, you said there, of course, a relationship between the two. Now, how, how does decolonization uh, fit into the discussion of post-colonial literature and the lived experiences of Africans. We, when we talk about independence or decolonization of Africa or independence Africa, independent Africa today, we need to first consider decolonization. In other words, how did Africans become independent? So politically, there had to be a process through which Africans uh, become independent. And that period, historically and politically, is called the colonization era. But at the same time, too, we could ask ourselves, did decolonization actually take place? In other words, in what way? We can talk about decolonization, linguistic decolonization, political decolonization, and also maybe uh, social, cultural decolonization. And today, what I see in Africa is more or less uh, a neo-colonial phenomenon or situation where we are not totally independent. What happened after colonization or leading up to independence was a very uh, disheartened way of looking at how Africans were treated and how Europeans responded to African nationalists who were trying to push for independence. So Africa, actually the continent, most countries never went through this process of decolonization in a way, or if you will, decoloniality, because not only were Africans still, you know, tied to the Western, tied to Western ideas of knowledge production, but also they did not come up with ways to decolonize the institutions. So today, after, years after, you know, you see the school curriculum being changed, uh, and in many countries we copied the curriculum from 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 Europe and never thought about how those could be applicable to our situations in Africa. So I think decolonization actually never occurred, and we could also look at how Europeans responded to uh, to the struggle that led to independent African countries. Um, in Guinea, for instance, the French, you know, sabotaged the infrastructure, they burned hospitals and libraries, and uh, you would think, why would they do such a thing? So it was not something that Europeans wanted, or independence was not something that Europeans gave Africans willingly. In Kenya, for instance, in Algeria, there was a war, you know, guerrilla war that lasted for many, many years. And Fernand was part of that in Algeria too, and he writes eloquently about that. So it also shows that the lie about civilizing the native was a big one, because if you are trying to civilize me, so to speak, and I realized that, okay, I'm now civilized. You can leave now. Why don't you just leave? You know, why would you burn down, you know, stuff that, you know, was there before? Why would you sabotage the infrastructure? Why would you do, why would you go even to war to try to help someone? It is not, uh, you know, doesn't actually, uh, yeah. So, so those words for me uh, are proofs that these people were not there to civilize anybody. 
they were there to get whatever they wanted to get, you know, economically, uh, socially, and, and culturally. So in many ways, I don't think that coloniz uh, decolonization actually took place because decolonization would mean that Africans would be in control of their uh, own destiny. And today we see a continent that is so big and rich in resources, we still borrowing money from, uh, from, the, from the West. And the people that we're borrowing money from don't have any resources. What is that? You know, it's almost mind-boggling. So I think that decolonization is very, uh, it's a farce, so to speak. It didn't it actually didn't take uh, take place. And and if you look at the history after today, and you know more about the France CFA and the struggle for African, uh, the Francophone African countries to be independent of that. So many many years after independence, these Francophone countries are still depositing their money in French accounts. So you know from that those uh, incidents that the West actually needs Africa, not the other way around. I think that's that's an interesting take on uh, the idea of decolonization, which will actually take me because I want us to dig more into the practical application of postcolonial theory and the idea of decolonization on the African continent. Africa has always been the punching bag of the West. Uh, that is to say, Africa is always relegated to the lowest rank economically, politically, and culturally. In other words, we have been uh, written out of history in an Hegelian uh, fashion. Uh, what do you think account for this? And what should be the role of African leaders, academics, and organizations such as the African Union? What role should they play in restoring Africa's place in world history and in the continent's true emancipation? And when I say world history, I'm not, I don't mean that, you know, Africa is, is out of it, right? But there's cer certain conceptions um, from the West, for instance, when Nicolas Sarkozy went to Dakar and gave his famous discourse of Dakar, saying that Africa is not well present in you know in world history, that's what I mean. So yes, um, well, writing Africa out of history is not new, and uh, Hegel once said that Africa is not uh, was not um, a subject of history, and this writing Africa out of history is one way uh, in which the global north tries to discredit any achievement or contribution the continent had made and still continues to make towards civilizations. And I'm not just talking about uh, Egyptian civilization and all those things. I'm talking about how Africa actually helped uh, build Western societies through you know, forms of slavery for 300 and some years. And I don't think that is a joke or should be taken for granted. And so you mentioned Sarkozy earlier. It's as though we never did anything, you know, to help or to contribute to this uh, uh, world civilization. And when you look at even intellectually, African African civilization have have been very central to Western uh, civilization. But I'm not going to go there because many people and Czech and Tajik and others have already. Uh, uh, spoken to that effect. But African leaders, including the African Union, for instance, uh, need to stop looking to the West. We need to stop mm -hmm. doing things like that because it's as though everything that we do, we need to 
get permission from, from the West. So we need to stop doing that and find solutions that are endemic, solutions that fit our own situation, our own, our own uh, uh, predicament or ideas, everyday ideas, lived conditions. So uh, we should also try to remove those barriers that divide us. Barriers, I mean physical barriers, uh, new borders, and also imaginary borders. In other words, sometimes I think it is easier to get a visa to go to Europe or to America than to get a visa to go to Kenya if you're from West Africa, for instance. So those are the things that happened because of Berlin in 1885. As I said earlier, those should not prevent Africans from moving freely from one country to another. And Nkrumah was one of those who proposed a, an African unity, in other words, Africa as one big uh, uh, country. You can still have borders, but he proposed that we have an African uh, a continent that is one, in a sense, like the United States of Africa, for instance. I'm not trying to be uh, romantic here, but it might be too late for that. But at the same time, we shouldn't prevent other people. You are from Senegal and you want to go to Kenya. Huh, I think it's going to take you a lot to get a visa to go to, to Kenya. You are on the same continent. So it, those things have to be uh, removed. And we also divide ourselves into Francophone, Anglophone, and Lusophone countries. That is also another barrier. So you find 14 African countries that are still tied to France. Not that they wanted to, because France also has a lot to say about those countries. Uh, so in a way, we need to make do. with. We need, we need to abolish all those uh, barriers. Uh, there's one um, Nigerian um, artist called Sony Okunson. He's dead now. And uh, so I'm mentioning him because to come to um, a true emancipation of the continent, we should think about the West also. In other words, we want to be free, but as you can tell, you as a scholar, you as a scholar too, you'd also notice in your research and everyday life in in those countries, African countries, that it is not just because Africans really want to be independent. It is because the West also knows that Africa is important to their own survival. So they prevent that from happening. So Sonny Okunson, uh, in one of his songs, said, you know, we did you nothing, we did nothing wrong to you, leave us alone. So one of the, it's a two-way street. We want to be independent, but also the world should leave us alone. We did nothing wrong to you. We actually contributed to your own uh, riches. So leave us alone now. Whatever you want to do, just leave us alone. So I think that's very important. Another thing, uh, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, for instance, a few countries, Senegal, for instance, and Ghana, have come up with tests kids very fast, you know. But at the same time, too, we see a lot of other countries copying what the West is doing. African leaders, the African Union doesn't take the mantle to say, okay, we are doing this, this, and this. We are trying to, um, uh, to come up with tests or we are doing research in a way that would alleviate the, 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 the crisis. No, we're always following the West. So what does self-distancing actually mean in a market like uh, Makola market in, in Accra or Grand Marché in Lome or big markets in, in Dakar, for instance. How do you do that? No, no, no. Self-distancing is a privilege that Africans may or may not afford. So we have to find ways to deal with these problems on the continent, not just following uh, the West. And I was thinking about this the other day, that maybe we should have a CNN, quote-unquote, 
that is African. In other words, an African equivalent of CNN in Africa. So we, so people know. Today, for instance, you watch the uh, the main media in, in in America, and they don't even mention Africa in this pandemic. They'll talk about, okay, let's see how the world is doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis this pandemic. And they mention either Spain, France, uh, Italy, and maybe they might mention uh, South Africa. And that's it. They don't, this is a big continent of 1.2 billion people. Mm -hmm. They don't mention it at all. So I think we should carry our own burden. And, and I'm not blaming the West for that. We should tell our own stories. And that's one of the ways in which post-colonial theory actually comes in. We should be able to tell our own stories if others are not going to tell it for us. And if they do tell that story, we know how it goes, you know, it, it would go. So we should champion those things. Another thing about African leaders, I'm not to show what they are doing, but it is just not expedient. They don't say anything. They don't write anything. They don't, there's no, there's a platform or there's no platform. <laughs> I don't know what, which one, but we don't hear from them. At least in other countries you hear people say, apart from Madagascar, you know, they are not, African leaders are not saying much about this pandemic. They're just there and we're copying. If America says, oh, self-quarantine for 14 days, okay, we say, okay, self-quarantine. If they say self-isolate, we self-isolate. We don't even understand that. So I think it is very important for us to chart our own destiny, to do what we need to do in many ways. Um, another thing about this pandemic is that I was very surprised and saddened and disappointed that the ways uh, in which Africans are treated in China today, that is not even on the news at all. And I watched CNN, I said, but Anderson Cooper, why don't you talk about that? Why don't anybody talk about the ways in which Africans are treated badly? They're chased out of their homes. They cannot even buy in stores. And nobody says anything about that. So if we have our own networks or if we have our own quote-unquote cnn we will be able to tell people what is going on with africans in china and chinese people are treating africans in such a way that they are animals there was one chinese guy who called africans monkeys and he was deported from kenya mm -hmm. so we see all those things happening but nobody says anything and in this case you know <laughs> before they check your passport as long as you are a black person they want to maltreat you in a sense so i think this is when you know the diaspora or a pan-africanist uh, sentiment has to play a role in the ways in which africans are treated so i think that african leaders and writers too writers should continue writing and and uh, you know i'm not a fiction writer but any kind of writing could contribute to the true emancipation of africa we should take our own destinies in our own hands you pinpoint some some major uh, issues here on the continent, especially when it comes to how the pandemic is being handled. And granted that Africa, you know, so far uh, has been doing quite well, knock on wood. Yes. And um, but there always there's room for improvement. And yes, it's good to take what's good from some places and try to integrate it with your own initiatives. And that's what's lacking right now. And I uh, congratulate Madagascar for having the audacity of coming up with its own, you know, remedy and telling the rest of the world, we are not imposing this on you, but we have noticed that 
some of our scientists have noticed that this is working quite well. Right. It might not work for you, right. but it's working for us. Exactly. And I also appreciate the support that some uh, African leaders uh, have shown so far vis-a-vis mm-hmm. uh, -vis Madagascar. But I think that we should not wait for the World Health Organization mm -hmm. or the, the CDC or Institut Pasteur yes. to come up and run uh, clinical trials for us. We have enough scientists who can do that job for Africans. Now, whether pharmaceutical companies in the West are going to validate us and our research or not, we don't care. Right? If it works for us, it's fine. It doesn't have to work for you. You don't have to you know, profit from the COVID organic to declare that it's, it's working. And I think that's, uh, that's something that we should do more work on. And it is also a domain that uh, the African Union should step up and undertake those ideas and initiatives. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the African Union. I skipped that. The African Union, what is the African Union doing, in a sense? How can't this body, uh, I think you, you told me that they have a, a kind of CDC uh, um, angle to it. What are they doing in this case? Why don't they come together? Is it just meeting in one uh, African capital and 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 drinking and and carousing what are they doing about this in african union and we don't hear anything from them and i'm thinking you know so madagascar is very very uh, we don't have to copy the west and you you and i have already um, discussed that expectations for the continent are so low that they don't think the world doesn't think that anything good can come from the continent so if we find and all that they can come up with the west can come up with is that oh maybe they are lucky they don't know why the numbers are so low in africa or they're not doing so much testing but you know figures don't sometimes they lie but usually they don't lie but if there's not enough testing It is a consensus that the virus is not thriving very well in on the continent. So we have lower infections and also a lower death. But they never thought about what Africans are doing. So in a way that uh, the numbers are so low. But again, we don't have to impose anything on anybody. Anything that works for Africa works for Africa. It doesn't matter. You can come up with an explanation. It doesn't matter. I think that Africans are doing quite well. Whatever practices they're, they're implementing uh, are working. I saw on uh, Facebook the other day, yes. because if you remember when Madagascar came up with COVID Organic, COVID -organic yes. World Health Organization and other entities were asking, okay, what are the elements? What are the components to this yeah. uh, COVID Organic? And of course, they're not going to give it away. They want to make money off of it. Exactly. And then somebody wrote on uh, Facebook, was one of my friends, said, wait a minute, Coca-Cola have been sold or is being sold around the world for how many decades? Right. Nobody never asked them to disclose the elements right. of Coca-Cola, yes. and they're still selling. Now, why do they want Madagascar to tell the rest of the world what is? It's just, there is some type of like paternalism yeah, in the way they handle this whole Uh, remedy that Madagascar came up with. You tell us what's in it, otherwise we will not validate it. Which is very... Yeah, so to me, that's, 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 very, that's very troubling. And Africa as a continent could do better, right? They could have done better defending Madagascar, and they could have done better trying to run their own clinical trials, right? And 
recently, there is a Senegalese scholar, uh, Professor Pendambo, mm. who wrote an op-ed uh, talking about how Senegalese scientists mm. could use local remedies. Because on the continent in general, in Senegal specifically, there are a lot of traditional remedies that people use when they uh, fight a uh, flu. We talk about like the ger, kinkaliba, ozos, plants have medicinal characteristics and have been used for decades. Why can't we gather a group of scientists and have them run some clinical tests about those plants in relation to the COVID or uh, COVID-19? Because uh, this COVID-19 has revealed quite a lot. And again, it goes back to our discussion about post-colonial theory, the practical side and the theoretical side. The practical side of decoloniality, practical side has to do with knowledge production in a sense. So if we have knowledge that the West doesn't know, again, we don't have to force them to do anything. And as the saying goes, nothing exists until the white man discovers it. So if they don't put their stamp on it, even the world health organization doesn't want to acknowledge that they don't have to acknowledge it so and i think uh, the president of uh, madagascar said you may not trust our remedies but count your number the number of deaths in your country and count the number of deaths in our country so that tells a story so you can do whatever you want to do but we don't have to we don't have to get permission from the west to do whatever we want to do i think this is what's going to happen i hope that from now on we will have less cases around the world mm -hmm. and when the whole pandemic is behind us you will see western scientists starting to flock to africa and try to understand what happened then my idea is before that rush to africa happens again mm -hmm. to find out what they use and all of that african scientists need to be ahead they need to do the research publish in the best journals, scientific journals, published uh, in their own journals and not wait for the validation of pharmaceutical companies. We don't need that. We have enough expertise to, to do that. And another thing I think could help is also try to find some type of collaboration mm -hmm. between African scientists on the continent and African in the diaspora, and this includes people of African descent yes. in, you know, the United States, the Caribbean, uh, Europe, everywhere. The expertise is here. Right. They have it. Africans and people of color are in best universities, the most prestigious companies and, and all that. They have the expertise. Yes. Yeah. So I think if there's any African leader listening, it is time for you to push for that initiative to happen. African scientists need to be more audacious and undertake these uh, initiatives. It doesn't require a lot, I think. Yeah, I think uh, one way for us on the continent to not just talk about post-colonial theory in, you know, abstract ways is to do what you just said, you know, scientists coming together and, 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 trying to find ways to do research and share information. And I think there is um, a collaboration between African scientists 
and African uh, scientists in the African diaspora. I think it's called the Scientific African or something. I get a newsletter from them once in a while, and it is a coming together of Africans on the continent and scientists on the continent and African scientists in the diaspora in the U.S. mainly, but also in Latin America and uh, in South America. And it's quite interesting that they can collaborate together and do things that would be very uh, beneficial to the continent. And also to talk about post-colonialism or post-colonial theory is also to think about how, where do we go from here? In other words, what are the discussions pertaining to post-colonial theory or criticism today? And uh, one thing I just want to add is that the history that has been meted out to us cannot be undone. In other words, it's a historical fact, right? Slavery, colonialism, and all that. And uh, in a way, we cannot unring the bell. So what we need to do now in terms of advancing, you know, and our own cause is to look at transformation. How do we transform our societies uh, in a way that would fit the present condition. We cannot go back and say, oh, let's undo colonization, let's undo slavery. That's not possible. But where do we go from here? I think most theorists are now thinking about the way forward transformation. In other words, how do we transform what we have today? It's not a matter of bad-mouthing or rejecting Western ideas or anything. It's about the ones that would benefit us. And I think Senghor said in his theorization of negritude, uh, how we can assimilate selectively. In other words, we choose things that are, you know, beneficial from the West. Not everything, no culture is perfect. So we take things from the West that are important or can help us, and we take stuff from our own uh, uh, environment as well. So we shouldn't think that the West, everything coming from the West, yes, they've used a lot of things to colonize and to debase us, but we can take learn from that and also from our own environment. And I think that's the healthiest way to come to terms with our own condition and a better life for ourselves. That's a good way to put it. Now, who is your favorite post-colonial theorist? <laughs> if, if you have any, of course, who's your favorite? Now, I look, I don't like that question. You know why? <laughs> because it's a tricky one. It's as though you're asking me to say, oh, which of your children do you like best? <laughs> you know, but having said that, um, I take from each theorist ideas that, you know, could be used in this environment or circumstance or, or situation. And um, as the field progresses, as the field field. Uh, moves forward or expands, uh, more insights are coming out. And what I try to do is to take a, a bit from each of these theories. So I cannot specifically say I like these theories, but when we look at post-colonial theorists today, uh, you know, Said is already gone, um, uh, but Baba, Spivak, and all those, they all take from Fanon, Franz Fanon. Uh, and and Baba doesn't you know deny that. He's written quite a bit. And, but Fernand coming from the French-speaking Caribbean, Martinique, to be more precise, and also his experience, so somebody who had experience in Algeria during the French occupation of Algeria, uh, as a French citizen, a black person, but as a French citizen in Algeria, where he thinks his people are from, in other words, the continent, also conundrum, and of course he was targeted by the French in many, many ways. So I think he is one of the fundamental, you know, um, mm-hmm. theorists of, of post-colonial, uh, of post-colonialism. And I think that he's fundamental, but at the same time, 
if his experiences were in another country that is anglophone or lusophone that would have actually added to his theorizing of the post-colonial situation and not that it is bad but it would be very very interesting to see because we know how he would approach the anglophone countries and and also i think that um, he's um, we know we know that colonial enterprise uh, depends on each colonial power so you look at the French colonization, you know already it's different from uh, the Anglophone and the, uh, the English colonization. Uh, so I think his uh, approach is quite good, uh, but an addition to that would be an, an experience from the Anglophone countries. I, I recently read a piece on Africa is a country, mm-hmm. and apparently at one point, Fanon was looking, this was before he went to Algeria. Right and get involved yeah, in the war. So he wrote a letter to Leopold Sedar Senghor mm-hmm. asking him for, uh, I think, a job yeah. in, uh, right. in, in Dakar right. because he wanted to, to, work, to work over there. Yeah. Yeah. He never like received mm-hmm. a response from him. Right. But uh, they also, it is also said that the letter itself has not been, you know, cited nobody can confirm that that letter existed or not uh-huh. now i'm wondering if Senghor responded positively and he ended up in in dakar west africa would that change his theory and his experience about uh, colonialism in general right so it, it's an interesting question would we see a different fanon if he spent the time uh, he spent in Algeria if he spent it in, in Senegal. But that will be the discussion of another episode. And thank you very much, uh, Dr. Logan, for this wonderful session. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with our listeners. And uh, we hope you will have the chance to come back at some point to uh, talk more about your work in uh, race, uh, critical race theory and stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, It's my pleasure and uh, I hope to be back again soon and we can discuss other issues because there's so much to discuss. Hopefully, COVID-19 will not prevent us from doing that. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it. And I will talk to you next time on another episode of uh, The Africanist. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Manejamo Africa, moi sunyuna tangue.